Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the intersection of work and well-being. I'm your host, Coach Marty, and each episode, I interview mental health experts, coaches, and industry insiders to bring you practical insights and tips that will help you build a meaningful, rewarding, and sustainable career. So join me as we explore the path to career satisfaction, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, we sit down with Dan Jarvis, the founder of the nonprofit 220, the co-founder and chief healer at Anxiety Guys, and the host of the podcast of the same name. He uses neurolinguistic programming techniques to help veterans and civilians heal from anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And together we discuss how trauma is stored in the body, what you can do to better understand your emotions, and how neurolinguistic programming techniques can help you in your healing journey. If you are enjoying the Career Therapy Podcast, please leave us a review on Spotify and iTunes and share this episode with someone you know who is struggling with burnout at work or in their job search so we can help more people navigate their way to a better career. Thank you for tuning in. Now on to our conversation with Dan Jarvis. All right, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Very excited to jump in and talk about anxiety with you. You are, you know, we we talked prior and, you know, the depth of what you're talking about and the things that you're working on really, really resonates with the people that listen to the show, because I don't think I've met a single person that I've worked with who hasn't had some type of anxiety, fear, burnout, and everything else sure. that goes along with it. Um, as we kick things off here, I'd love to just get a little bit about your background and how you got into anxiety work. So Martin, appreciate the invitation to uh, present your podcast. It's it's very much uh, appreciated. Uh, my background is kind of unique to the civilian population. I, I grew up in military and law enforcement and deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, about I think I had about 27 months deployed. Did time as a drill sergeant for the United States Army. And when I left military service, I was medically retired. Um, the idle mind being the devil's playground, everything that was in my head started just coming full force into the front of my mind uh, to the point where I wasn't sleeping. Uh, my emotions were all over the place. You know, what's going on with me? And when I finally went to the Department of Veterans Affairs, of course, the diagnosis was post-traumatic stress disorder with major depressive disorder and anxiety, right? Um, of course, PTSD in itself is an anxiety condition. It's a, the highest form of anxiety. Um, so I really kind of went on a, a journey of, of trying to find some way to heal myself because one, I wasn't looking for labels and two, I wasn't looking for drugs. And that's two things that the VA, the first thing was drugs and then it's the label and then it's, you know, talk therapy. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden you're opening emotions up that, you know, I had pretty good, pretty well, I thought had boxed up and put away. And, you know, it wasn't a very good experience with the VA. So I ended up going into the civilian world looking for alternative treatments and this is the diagnosis was in 2017 and it was in 2018 that I started a nonprofit for veterans and first responders called 220. And the goal and mission of that nonprofit was to kind of stand in the gap with alternative treatments to that veteran first responder space. And um, so we were really looking for better ways to heal, better ways to, you know, connect veterans and first responders. And before we knew it, we actually started going down the rabbit hole of something called neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, a lot of people may know as. And there was some pretty profound methods that were developed probably back around the 1980s, early 1980s uh, for, for phobias, curing phobias. And um, we kind of modeled those processes. Of course, we we added 
some components to it that differentiates it. But we started seeing the results at very quickly, you know, these veterans and first responders were healing. And the, the remarkable part is when I went through that healing journey myself, it was a paradigm shift for me. And my thought was, why is this not available to everyone who's ever put on a uniform? So for five years, we've been in that space trying to trying to fill that void for the, the, the men and women who serve. And we were getting so many requests for um, civilian help, but the nonprofit by its bylaws was restricted to who it could work with. So my best friend, Nick Davis, him and I have been on the journey with 220 since the very beginning. And we're like, why can't we take this into the civilian sector? So we started talking to some folks and then we put together a business model. Next thing you know, we're utilizing these techniques with civilians because one, there's a pain point, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. And two, there's a solution. And that's what we've developed at 220. So um, we were getting great results. We're getting a lot of good interaction and feedback because the reality is first responders, vets, we don't hold the patent to trauma. We don't hold the patent to anxiety. Um, the National Institute of Health uh, has published that 21% of American adults in the United States are literally clinically diagnosed with PTSD. And, and like we said before, that's not even counting those that self-diagnose. People know what anxiety is, right? You could go into a room of people and say, hey, who's got PTSD? And nobody's going to raise their hand. Who's got anxiety? And half the room will raise their hands because it's real. And it's something that's affecting all of us. You know, plus, you know, coming out of the whole COVID um, a lot of isolation, a, a lot of emotional dysregulation with the American public that even even through COVID, I believe the numbers are around 52% of Americans have a mental health diagnosis as a result. So we, it's, it's just remarkable when you see how quickly the brain can actually heal itself. And so we've been on a journey. We, we, we started a podcast called The Anxiety Guys. Um, and then now we're working with civilian clients and letting them see that they can heal as well as the veteran and first responder world is. Um, the really cool part is we have a five-year track record on the on the nonprofit that you know you could do research and, and and that's what we tell people, hey, look, don't take our word for it. Just go down and go look at the reviews that the nonprofit's been getting. And you know, I, I wish we had more. There's about 103 five-star reviews, but there's nothing less than a five-star review. So there's no four-star reviews, three star, two, one stars. So it's a pretty easy um sell and, and the uh the basically the nonprofits become a feeder for the the for-profit because they've been around for long enough that that once a veteran heals they start talking to people and then their friends and family say hey how can we do this and then we're like well we can't do anything with you through the nonprofit now we can and that's through um, through anxiety guys and you know it's it's really cool because we've actually been starting to getting into some corporate work so we we signed our first contract with Quiet Professionals. They're a defense contractor down in Tampa, Florida. And we just, Nick and I just went down there and we met with Andy Wilson, their CEO, who's retired military. He's retired out of the Delta community. So high, high functioning operator. And when he watched us run the process on one of his civilian staff members, he was literally blown away. And even though that was, you know, an eight hour trip for coffee, it turned into 10 hours later, we'd worked with eight of their employees. And so far we've already worked with over 30. And, you know, every time we get one of the quiet professionals clients, they come to us and say, we hear you guys are the, are, are the, like, like the magical guys, you know, and we're like, no, we're not magical in any way. We just basically have a roadmap, right? Your brain is hardwired, fight or flight, hardwired anxiety or, or depression, and we can just show your brain what it needs to do to reprocess. And the very simple, you know, you're driving the car. We're just, we're just holding the map. 
Uh, and it's pretty wild when you can see somebody who who may have been act- actively suicidal are no longer suicidal or somebody who has been having night terrors for 10 years is now sleeping and resting or, or somebody who's been anxious every time they get into a social setting can literally go into a, a social setting without any anxiety. So it literally can change patterns of behavior that can move you in entirely different directions. You know, with, with the quiet professionals, um, we're basically, we're, we're, we're rewriting and, and changing their work culture. So, you know, cause imagine if you have an organization with 30 people with PTSD you're not going to be really efficient, right? Because when your brain goes into that fight or flight, you get into that lizard brain, you lose your neocortex, you lose your logic brain, and you shut your emotions, you know, your your empathy basically can shut down. So if you're if you're operating in a business environment, having that happen is not conducive to to work culture. And it's it's a pretty remarkable, um, it's pretty mar- remarkable to actually observe it. Uh, and and to, to do it in real time. So you'll see the the shift will happen within that first session. You know, then by the time the second or third session is over, they're done. They have no more anxiety. People that were depressed are no longer depressed. People who had PTSD no longer have PTSD, you know, and, and that that's given real credit to the fact that these processes are neurological and not psychological. Um, and, and we stand on the shoulders of giants. This isn't something Dan Jarvis and Nick Davis developed. It's something that's been around. It's just not been uh, tapped into to its full potential. And, and now we're actually doing some research with it. Uh, where we can see what's going on in the brain with brain scans. You can see anxiety in the brain. You can see depression in the brain. You can see post-traumatic stress in the brain, but you can also see that brain healing. Um, so we kind of like to look at you know, anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress as an injury versus illness. Uh, and, and what do you do if you break your arm? You, you put, your, put a cast on it. You go to the doctor, put a cast on it. But unfortunately, our culture, we've stigmatized mental health to the point where nobody wants to say, hey, I need help. You know, and that's kind of where I was after coming back from Afghanistan. You know, for me, suicide became my option. And a couple of things happened that prevented that. And one was the suicide of another soldier, you know, allowed me to look at things totally differently and how it affected our men. Um, so that I, I credit Corey Smathers for saving my life. Unfortunately, it's when he took his own. So that's why we move, you know, we've been moving heaven and earth, trying to find ways to get healing to the, the veteran and first responder. And now that that organization is fully functioning and operational on its own, Nick and I were able to step out and uh, start bringing these techniques to the civilian sector so we can start transforming our society back to healthy and, and uh, normal homeostatic states. So. Everything you're saying is so incredible, and I I really love the work that you're doing. And when you're talking about these things, you know, you brought up so many different topics that I'm hoping to dig in here uh, with you today. One thing in particular is this, you know, difference between PTSD, anxiety, and depression. I think you know you mentioned when some if you walk into a room, everyone who has anxiety knows that they have anxiety but maybe not PTSD, maybe not depression. Um, you know, a lot of times depression gets, we've had podcast episodes where we talk about how depression gets misinterpreted as fatigue and different right. things like that. So how do you help people? How do you differentiate between the three things and how can you, how can people maybe do a little bit of a self-reflection to see if and how they might be experiencing this? Sure. So we use three metrics and it's the same metrics that the mental health world uses. We use the PCL five, which is the PTSD checklist version five. You can actually download it. You can Google it, download it. Uh, The GAD seven for general anxiety disorder. Um, And then the PHQ nine, which is for major depressive disorder. So you can literally, you can Google all of them, pull down, print off the, the printouts and score yourself, right? You basically have 20 questions for the PCL five, 
that you see where the person is on a neurological level. Like, are they sleeping? Are they focused? Are they detached from people? Are they, are their emotions all over the place? There's all, there's, there's 20 different questions that allows you to assess neurologically what, where you are. The anxiety scale is a seven question. It's three points per, it's a 21 point scale. And it tells you how much your anxiety levels are. So if you score 21 out of 21, which we get a lot of, you have severe anxiety, like everyday anxiety, you know, but if you're like, maybe you're 10 out of 21, you're in that low to moderate anxiety level. So you can actually do those self-assessments. The PHQ-9 just tells you how depressed you are. <clears throat> and, and that's the one that you really have to look at because what, what happens is people with PTSD and anxiety, they don't sleep, they don't rest. And if they're not sleeping or resting, their brain is constantly moving and they get overwhelmed. And then without the proper sleep or the REM sleep cycles that are required to process, they get really down and depressed. The body will literally start turning on itself. Um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, he's a world-renowned psychiatrist, wrote the book, The Body Keeps Score. And you can see, if you read his book, how the body will store all of that, you know, that icky, whatever you want to call it, at the cellular level to which causes disease. You know, you look at, you know, first responders have heart attacks, strokes at higher rates than normal, cancer rates at higher rates than normal, um, autoimmune disorders. So the body will, without the proper rest, is actually going to get into that uh, super fatigue state and you get out of that homeostasis. And next thing you know, you're sick or or you have a heart attack or you're or you're self-medicating to sleep, you're drinking a lot and you maybe you become diabetic. There's There's a lot of things that can come with those issues. So you really got to focus on mental wellness. And what we look at is we, we, we frame it in the way of peak performance, right? If you have anxiety, if you have depression or trauma, you're not operating optimally. You're not at your peak performance, but when you can regulate that and disconnect those pathways and no longer respond to that depression or respond to the anxiety or respond to the trauma, your performance levels increase because you have full access to your, your frontal cortex. Your brain is literally able to make logic and sense out of things that when you go into fight or flight, you get into that, that lizard brain, that reptilian brain, and you literally shut down and you don't know how to react. You know, imagine you're a college student or you're, you're applying for a job interview. And, and the next thing you know, you go to this interview and you get into a, you know, anxious state. You're not going to have access to all the information you need to, to, to score out well and win that interview. Uh, or a kid in school with with you know with test anxiety, it's the same thing. When your body goes into those anxious fight or flight response, you don't have access to the information that you need to pass the test. So, um, so we look at it from the from the peak performance level because we've worked with some CEOs of some major companies, um, plus working with you know corporate America, uh, just they actually can actually measure the the differences in their performance of their employees and their staff. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. It's uh, it's actually pretty exciting. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I think, you know, one of the things you talked about here is that sort of cyclical nature of these things, right? So right. you're anxious or something, and then you don't sleep, and then you don't sleep, so you're not effective at work, and then you're not effective at work, so you get anxious, and then you're anxious, so you don't sleep. Or, you know, uh, we have a lot of people who are, you know, terrified of networking, and you talked about that social right. aspect and how important that is. And so if you're scared to reach out to people, then you don't do it, which then makes you mm -hmm. isolated, which then makes you anxious, which then doesn't get the results you need, and then so on and so forth. And it keeps kind of coming around and around. And a lot of times, I think what happens is these things build up over time. Like you said, they get into our cellular structure. They almost become part of our identity, especially in our age of like, 
I am depressed. I am a, you know, it's not just that I have depression. It's that I am a depressed person, or it's not just that I have anxiety. It's that I like, that's my core identity. Now we see that happening Mm -hmm. with younger and younger people where they're like, you know, they want to almost create a brand around it and, and, and make that their, their everything. Um, And so, you know, we, you talked earlier about why you went this uh, neuro-linguistic direction versus medication. And, you know, as someone who has, you know, struggled to sleep throughout my life and anxiety and things like that, most recently I talked to a doctor about it, just kind of like, you know, what can I do? And the first thing they did within five minutes was prescribe me medication to sleep. And I took it one night and I was just like, this is awful. I feel terrible. I'm like sweating profusely. I ended up sleeping worse. Um, and I'm like, I'm not going to keep taking this. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to that medication versus mental wellness, um, perspective, what has been your experience with clients utilizing medication? Where has it been helpful? Where has it been hurtful? And, um, how has this new approach been able to help them either balance their life with mental wellness and medication or without it at all? So great question. And we, we run into a lot. We've run into this for the last five years with the veterans and the first responders, not so much first responders. Some do take medication, but the veterans, it's like the first order of business is prescribed antidepressants, anti-anxieties. And I've, it's, it's actually pretty common to have a veteran come to us with 23 different prescriptions. They started taking depression medications and SSRI, and then they give them benzoates for the anxiety. And the next thing you know, they're having these side effects. Well, let's give you this medication to help combat the side effect. And then you have new side effects. Well, let's give you that medication. And then the brain chemistry really gets screwed up at that point. So, you know, whether it's Ambien to sleep or, or some other kind of aid, you know, when we do the work with them, we'll, we'll disconnect all of the emotions attached to the traumatic experiences, the, the roots to the anxiety, the anger issues, rage issues, um, any kind of self-limiting belief is typically emotionally attached. And then what we can do is tell them at that point, Hey, look, don't stop taking your medications. You can't do that. You're going to have to go to your doctor and say, bring me off slowly. Um, because I tried taking myself off pretty quick and, weird stuff happens. So you literally have to do it slowly. So um, we've worked with people who were on Ambien for 10 years, and then they run one session, their body hits that reset, they go into that parasympathetic rest and digest. Next thing you know, they sleep 12, 13 hours because their brain's been craving it. And now they're hitting their REM sleep cycles, and then they no longer need their medications. So the goal is to keep them off of medications. I'm not opposed to medications because there are some conditions that require it. If you, you know, if you have a bipolar disorder, you know, it's a little bit different because you have so many highs and lows that you want to be able to stay calm and neutral. But when it comes to like depression, you know, we can typically find the roots of the depression and it, it comes in the form of sadness, loneliness, isolation. So when you can find where those emotions established, the beauty is when you can feel it, you can heal it, right? So we'll take them back to those early roots. We'll do our process on those roots and they'll disconnect those root cause emotions. And next thing you know, they're like, I'm not lonely anymore. I don't feel isolated anymore. I don't feel sad anymore. And if you're not sad, what are you, right? You're normal again, right? Mm -hmm. So depression just becomes cycles. Like we talked about earlier, you get in those negative feedback cycles. And over time, it becomes patterns of behavior. You know, I I like to say post-traumatic stress is a bad habit, right? 31 days, they'll diagnose you after a traumatic event. They won't diagnose it before that. It's acute stress, right? So if your body doesn't sleep day one, and it doesn't sleep day two, or it doesn't get much rest, or you self-medicating and it's not resting, 
Next thing you know, you've created a pattern of behavior that the brain says, I need to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do. And amygdala, fight or flight, emotion attaches to the traumatic event. The emotions are the problem, not the event. You can see the event after you do these processes and you're like, okay, that's that's not that bad, right? Or it isn't anymore because you no longer feel those emotions. And then that neural pathway will literally disconnect from the amygdala and the emotions will disconnect from the memory. And that it's a process called memory reconsolidation. So the emotions will move back to the hippocampus and the memory will move long-term. So it's like, okay, that happened. It sucks that it happened, but I no longer feel what I felt at the time. So it allows your brain to reprocess. So that's a really, that's a really fascinating part because you know we can do the QEEG brain scan, which we've done on a, a female uh, law enforcement officer, and her subjective scores on the PCL five, the GAD seven, and the PHQ nine were maxed. She was eighty out of eighty. She was twenty one out of twenty one. She was twenty eight out of twenty eight. And the doctor, the neuroscientist who actually did the brain scan, says, "Wow." your brain scan's the worst I've ever seen, right? And he said, and I work with Marine Special Operations active duty operators and your scores match your brain scan. And she felt so much validation in that moment because obviously she's a female police officer, which is a fairly male dominated world. Nobody believes you because you can't see what's going on inside the inside the brain. So, and then we were able to do two sessions within 24 hours. So we did two hours worth of work right after the brain scan 24 hours later, I did another probably an hour and a half. And then he did a follow-up brain scan. So we've got the pre and post data that shows the brain already starting to reconsolidate, the amygdala already resetting, the hippocampus is already starting, um, the cuneus is already reconsolidating. And the Dr. Hagedorn, his his mind was just kind of like, wow, this is this is profound. He goes, it's one, it's proving you're not doing a placebo. I think he called that um fight to flight, right? So it's like a placebo effect for some people that feel really good after maybe talking to somebody and then that comes back. He said, this is proving it's neurological. It's it's not a placebo. You're actually making a neurological change in the brain. And he goes, by the way, you're doing in, in 24 hours what it takes six months for an EMDR master practitioner to achieve. That's the profound nature of the, the neuro-linguistic programming is it's probably the greatest advancement in psychology, but the industry doesn't, the psychological industry doesn't like it there's more research coming out on it now but they've kind of over years uh have developed uh probably a bad reputation um, i've done a lot of the nlp training and, and some of it's you know a little bit on the dark psychology you can use it to manipulate people but we're just using it to set people free of anxiety depression and trauma and it's it's extremely effective so can you go a little bit deeper into what exactly neurolinguistic programming is? Because I would have a feeling that a lot of people listening have never heard that phrase before or had any experience with it or even known anyone who's done it. So uh, you kind of touched on the dark psychology, but also using it for the good the good side of things. What exactly right. is it and how are you using it? So neurolinguistic programming was developed by Dr. Richard Bandler and John Grinder. And they were, one was a linguist and I think one was a, uh, like a computer coder. So they brought this, this philosophy together and it's based on modeling excellence, right? So they went to people like Virginia Satir, who was the, probably the founder of family therapy. Uh, they modeled all of her behaviors and they learned that Virginia Satir uses um, X number, it's like 16 language patterns, and that's it. So by using all of these language patterns, it allows you to dig into the, the deepest root cause. So like, if somebody says, you know, everybody is, is wrong, and you're like, everybody's wrong, like nobody's right, and it gets you thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's got to be some people that are, so it allows you to dig into that, that, 
that deepest root, you know, what's the specific intent or purpose of whatever. And then on the other side, um, Milton Erickson, who is a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, was probably considered the the greatest minds of hypnotherapy. And they modeled uh, Milton Erickson, and they determined that there's also a bunch of language patterns in the Ericksonian model of language. And what Erickson did is he would always chunk up really high. So you get people up into this high chunk state. Like, for example, you know, I'll, I'll give you a pattern. When when we ask somebody to find the root of anger, like, well, I don't know when it began. And an Ericksonian pattern would be like, well, I know you don't know, but if you did, when was it? And what you're doing is you're bypassing what's called the critical faculty and you're going right subconscious. And it's crazy because nine out of 10 people will come back right away with an answer. And they're like, I don't know where that came from because you got right into that subconscious. It's, it's, it's Ericksonian language patterns. So, and then you have on the other part, Fritz Perls, you know, who was into really big into Gestalt. So, and the NLP founders, they basically modeled these three people for the basis of, I guess, for lack of a better word, the psychology of things. And then they started training people to be like Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, Milton Erickson. So now you have a therapist who is now performing just as well as Virginia Satir or a hypnotherapist that's performing just as well as Milton Erickson. And, and the, the remarkable thing is these people didn't know how good they were. They didn't know why they got the results they did until somebody came in and examined what they were doing. So then the NLP went into further into modeling sales techniques, you know, um, probably a name that your audience will know is Tony Robbins. All right, Tony Robbins was in the original trainings with Dr. Grinder and Dr. Bandler. And he left those that institution or that organization and started his own process he calls neuroassociative conditioning. So he does a lot of things based on the same thing. So basically we know people are motivated by emotions, right? So if you know people are motivated by emotions, you can trigger those emotions and get them to respond and react the way you want to. That's kind of the dark side of the psychology. We're, we're emotional creatures. We're meaning-seeking. We seek connection with other people, but we're limbic brain, right? So when, when the limbic brain activates, that's when we make our decisions. We rarely make the decisions solely based on logic. So people in the NLP world started figuring this out, and then that next thing you know, you're you're sitting with a used car salesman. They're using a technique that's rooted in neurolinguistic programming. And before you know it, you're buying a car and then you buy the car and you're like, why did I just do that? Right. Um, you know, I did a NLP master practitioner training and it's always about the NLP world is about selling training. Right. So I'm like, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to listen to the sales pitch for the next, for the trainer course. And then you start listening to the sales pitch and it's, it's embedding commands. They're, they're embedding hypnotic commands. That's the dark part of it, which is like, that's why we don't, we don't really get into that piece. We, you know, we know what we can do with anxiety. We know what we can do with depression, anger problems. We know what we can do with um, sadness. We know what we can do with trauma. And we just kind of focus just on that because it's for us, it's about improving the quality of life uh, of the clients that we work with, because I, we don't want clients for 20 years, right? We've had clients come to us, go through two or three sessions, and then they get mad at their therapist because they've been in therapy for 20 years and we just fix something in three to four hours. And the reality is you can't get upset at the therapist because they're operating in a system that they're familiar with, right? They were educated to operate a very specific way, you know? And then when you tell somebody, hey, we can fix PTSD or heal PTSD or anxiety, they look at you like you've got something growing out of the middle of your forehead. Um, and that's just cognitive dissonance because the brain can't hold two separate beliefs at the same time. You either believe you can fix it or you believe you can't. And if you're struggling with anxiety for 20, 30 years and somebody says, hey, we can we can heal anxiety, they look at you like, say what? 
right? That's the, and then that's the, the belief issue. But the 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 cool part about, it, especially like on the veteran side and the first responder, the most important part of our processes is the rapport. Is the the rapport that you get into with the individual a therapist would call it therapeutic alliance. In in the NLP world, it's called rapport. You know, as if you like somebody, and it's easy for a a cop to talk to another cop or a firefighter with a firefighter, vet with a with a vet. And it's about trust. If you can build the trust to get them to do the processes, they don't have to believe it will work. And that's the amazing part is that I've had people say, well, I don't believe this is going to work. And I'm like, well, good thing for you. It's not faith healing. All right, just follow the instructions and let's see what happens. And then they do it. And then they have this dumbfounded, confused look on their mind. Like, where did that emotion just go? I've been feeling that for 20 years. I can't feel it anymore. And then the next thing you know, they're sleeping. And then their whole world changes because all you're doing is you're just changing, interrupting patterns of behavior that allow new patterns to create. And that new pattern is sleep, right? And as you sleep, you hit REM sleep, you process, you know, that's, that's the key. That's how we were designed to heal the rapid eye movement. That's when the brain literally goes through your day and says, okay, I, this was a bad event that happened. Let's, let's, let's move the memory into long-term and let's move the emotions in back to the hippocampus so we can use it next week. And then you don't have those feelings anymore. Yeah. Right? So, but a lot of the emotions piece, is information that you have taken out of context. All right. So you know, assumptions, right? Have you ever gotten mad at somebody and were angry or upset? And then you realize you're wrong. And then all that anger dissipates because in that moment, the brain finally made sense of it because it has to make sense. Otherwise it's going to make sense of itself. So we call that closing open loop. So if you close an open loop and you have information that's not, you know, congruent with your brain, you're going to fill in the data and that's the assumption that you're left with. And the next thing you know, you're feeling all of those emotions. So kind of what we do is we go back and reframe those rooted emotions. And I tell people, it's kind of like the brain is a computer. So it's like a brain frame. When you, when you update the brain at five years old, it'll literally go through and it'll change all your behaviors based on that emotion that's been driving it. So if you have somebody who doesn't want to network with, with clients because they get that fear, because maybe when they were nine years old, they got thrown in front of a group of people and were scared to death, that information stored in their amygdala. So now they're around people and they're activating that nine-year-old emotion and they can't network, right? Those things can be changed relatively quickly, right? Um, beliefs are another thing. People that have low self-esteem, right? They don't believe they're worthy or imposter syndrome. You probably deal with imposter syndrome in the corporate Every day. Because they're like, I shouldn't be here. How am I here, right? Well, first of all, they're not self-aware of who they are and what they actually, actually can do. I love the quote, Henry Ford, if you think you can or can't, you're right. So you get those people that don't have any preconceived beliefs about some, their selves. They're just building, they're on that growth mindset. They're gonna do things and they're gonna, they're gonna shoot for the stars. But occasionally one of us, we get elevated, you know, and then next thing you know, is like, I'm talking in front of a thousand people. How is this even possible? This is just me. I'm just Dan Jarvis, right? Next thing you know, you're in front of 5,000 people and you're still struggling with that imposter syndrome because there's an emotional attachment to it. And what we reject is what gets our energy. So if you reject that imposter syndrome, guess what gets your focus? That imposter syndrome. So you keep reactivating those same feelings. Same thing with anger. If you're sick and tired of being angry, guess what you're focusing on? You're focusing on anger and you're angry all the time. So when you actually can go back to the roots of those emotions, um, we can do some powerful techniques that'll allow your brain to basically reprocess it and reprogram yourself. So it's 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 pretty cool thing to watch. 
It's incredible. And it reminds me of a lot of things that I've been researching around like the still face experiment um, by Dr. Edward Tron Tronic mm -hmm. and uh, where, you know, a mother will, um, it, it kind of shows how early attachment begins. Uh, I think there used to be an old school of thinking, which is like when you're a baby, you don't, um, you, you're just kind of this blank slate and it kind of doesn't matter what happens to you until you get to a certain age. When in reality, there's a lot of communication and bonding and things that are happening at every stage of our development. And uh, if anyone wants to go Google that, the still face experiment, it's really fascinating and attachment styles and, and all these things kind of inform our belief systems and inform how we view ourselves and view the world and react to things. And so much of what we're struggling with is not necessarily something that's broken within us. It's a coping mechanism that worked for a certain situation that no longer works for the situation that we're in today. So in your work, you know, with people coming from, you know, such difficult experiences, you know, that maybe worked to live life that way at that time, but now they're in a completely different situation, different world, different experience, and it needs to shift. And it's really you know, it seems really hard to change those things, but as you're kind of touching on here, there might be some easier ways to do that. And so as we're digging into this, I, I one thing you said that I thought was really great was that we are designed to heal. How we heal, though, varies. And sometimes we can heal ourselves in ways that are sustainably sustainable long-term. And sometimes we quote unquote, maybe put a bandaid over a pretty big wound or something like that. Right. And so as we're thinking about these negative self-beliefs and these brain frames and changing these interruptions and these habits, um, you know, how, what, as you were learning about these things and trying these things out, were there any like walls that you ran up against or paths that you went down that you thought were going to be more, insightful but you had to kind of change course or was it all pretty well mapped out I'm, I'm kind of curious what your experience has been and where you feel like you know you you've had to adjust along the way sure so uh, originally honestly at the nonprofit level we thought our biggest allies was going to be the clinical mental health world once they figure out there's this way to heal trauma they're going to be our advocates we can train ten thousand of them the problem will fix itself but the problem is you're dealing with a collective belief structure. You know, you go back to beliefs. They're educated a very specific way. All of a sudden you're telling them, well, no, we can heal this. We can, we can show you, right? And then you have a hard time breaking into that. And, and for a collective belief to change, there's three phases to it. One is going to be criticism. They're going to criticize, ridicule what you do. Two, there's going to be opposition. They're actually going to come out and oppose what you do. And the, the last phase is they're going to finally accept it once the evidence is overwhelming. And then that belief changes. Kind of like the four-minute mile, prime example. Nobody could beat the four-minute mile until the first person did it. And once that first person beat the four-minute mile, it became possible for the collective mindset. It just happened. So that's kind of what we dealt. So we kind of ended up shifting on the nonprofit into the peer support world by training vets, first responders, and cops. You know, because frankly, we couldn't, I'm losing too many friends to suicide, the guys that I deployed with. And, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to give to another GoFundMe to pay for somebody's funeral when there is a real way to, to save a life. And so that was our big pivot. And then, so if the mental health world's not interested in this, that's why we end up creating the anxiety guys, because we don't do therapy. We don't do counseling. You know, even if somebody has a traumatic emotion, we never let them utter a single word about what happened. They can't talk about it. Same thing with somebody that has anxiety, because it might have started when they were six years old. We don't need to know when it started 
other than that was the first time and they feel it, right? Because once they feel it, we can heal it. Same thing with the trauma. We get them to feel it. We open that onion just enough. They get a little bit of a whiff of the, the trigger. We get them out of that. And then we run the process that allows that trigger to disconnect. So we don't do therapy. We don't do counseling. We, we call it, it's coaching. We're brain coaching. We're teaching your brain something. It's more akin to guided meditation with super powerful results. Because all I'm going to do is have that individual, you know, say for the trauma is they're going to create a, an image, a safe place where they were before the traumatic event occurred, a safe place after they activate the trigger, we run the process. And the next thing you know, they can't feel it anymore. So that's really how it goes. Matter of fact, it could even be put in an application because we've actually had um, men and women in the trainings that we train law enforcement and, and the veterans that would actually watch a demo of a live event on the on the platform for the uh, the pre work they do, and they'll run it using the instructions that we're giving on the live uh, demo, and they're getting the same results. So eventually, it's we're going to have it in some kind of application form that somebody could download. And just basically run it like a meditation app and literally run that process on themselves to be able to heal and, and actually pretty quickly. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program, which was built to give you the personalized support you need to advance in your career without fear and turn work-related anxiety into professional accomplishments. When you enroll in the Unstuck Coaching Program's monthly membership, you get immediate access to all of the coaching resources you need to crush it in your job search. This includes two one-on-one -on -one calls with Coach Marty every month, weekly job search support group sessions with the Unstuck community, access to the Unstuck curriculum, which guides you through every aspect of your job search from strategy through negotiations, and an invite to the Career Therapy Slack channel where you can chat with Coach Marty whenever job search questions come up. Want to see if the Unstuck Coaching Program is right for you? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free consultation with me in order to find out. How does it change between acute and chronic trauma? Because there's, you, you talk about that one event, right? Maybe it was something really specific that happened in the person's life. But I've also come across people that have had sort of chronic trauma that has been with them at every stage of their life, or they have a family structure that has been consistently traumatic over 30, 40 years. Um, mm -hmm. Have you seen it work in both situations and how might it differ? Um, it's, it's, it's run identical in each situation, like the acute, like a single event trauma, all you're doing is disconnecting that one specific event. They're no longer feeling the emotions, their body regulates, they sleep, they go back to normal. Um, law enforcement, firefighters, we, we run into chronic levels of trauma, like over a career of 30 years or maybe longer, where it doesn't matter. If you can identify the earliest experience, traumatic experience, activate that trigger and activate the biggest experience, they all neurologically will connect, right? So that first event at seven will connect to the event at 12 to 21 to the war event at 35 that was massive to the other five or six war events that weren't as massive. And you get that one and that big one, it's like, that's like the string of pearls. You pull it out and it just kind of, the rest will just fall away. Because I've had people um, after disconnecting a major traumatic emotion, they'll go into what was their second trauma. And they're like, huh, I don't feel it anymore. Right. Cause that's, that's that string of pearl that, that gestalt where the, the body will just release it. So it doesn't really matter. Um, they may need more sessions with uh, chronic trauma, even complex PTS 
Um, it, it doesn't even matter what the traumatic experience is. The nonprofit 220, uh, we had a, a professionally directed and produced documentary called Healing the Heroes of 9-11, The Way Forward. And we took five first responders, four from New York City Ground Zero. Uh, stories are amazing. The one from the Pentagon and listened to their stories, which are absolutely like one of the EMTs. Her name was Bonnie, was buried alive twice as the buildings collapsed. And so you can imagine every once in a while, she'd have to get on the subway. She'd get panicked. She'd have fear. She would worry. She would want to get in the city and get out as fast as she could. After we did the work with her, after her interview, the next time that she came back into the city, she caught herself laughing halfway through the subway trip and she didn't have those feelings anymore. And uh, we had one of them, one of the Marines, Johnny Walker, he um, couldn't go back to ground zero. He lives in New Jersey right across and he would go about two blocks because family would come in. They would want to go see the the memorial. And he just he couldn't go in. Him or his wife could not go in to, to the area of Ground Zero at the memorial. So after we got his story, and his story is extremely powerful, we did the work with him. And a couple of days later, he's back at Ground Zero, and he doesn't have those visceral emotional connections. It's kind of funny. Um, he always joked around. He's he, what well, It wasn't a joke. It was serious. He couldn't smell pork. Like if he, if he had, if he smelled pork on a barbecue, it just revolted him. All right. And after we did all the work with him, a few months later, he sends us a message joking around and he goes, man, this is crazy. I've just eaten more pork than the entire state of Alabama. Right. Cause those triggers are gone. They're no longer there. Right. You know, and the, the gentleman who was at the Pentagon, Carlo, he actually moved away to Japan because he wanted to hear the foreign voices in the background versus English voices, right? So think about that. He literally moved to another continent and he never went back to the Pentagon, but after we did the work with him, he was able to go back to the Pentagon. So pretty powerful. And, and we've actually had many folks, probably I would say close to 250 people who've been treated since the film got released. And that was the objective is to take people through a paradigm change. Because if you watch the movie at the beginning, and you have PTSD, you had it for 20 years, you don't believe you can fix it because you've tried everything. Next thing you know, they're hearing these powerful stories or connecting with the first responders, and then they're seeing the backside. So they literally transition into a paradigm change. And we had one guy says, well, I didn't know you could cure PTSD. I said, well, we don't like to use the word cure because that impl implicates um, an illness. I said, we heal it because it's an injury. Your brain just got stuck in the on position. We just showed you how to, how to get it unstuck. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And, you know, go back to the, you know, you were talking about attachments and that, uh, and children, um, the first seven years of a child's life, they have no critical faculty, All right? Your critical faculty, that's the, the barrier between your unconscious and your conscious brain that says, Hmm, I, I don't trust that information. And it allows you not to receive that information. So, and you're in that seven year period, and this is where we find most of the emotions get rooted is in the six-year-old self, Right. Dad was angry. Children were around an angry dad. Children became angry. That became their patterns of behavior. So when you can actually go back to those earlier moments and reframe them, it allows them to release those emotions very powerfully. Uh, or back, it could be a belief. You know, one of the things I remember was when I was 11, um, probably we're talking 1981, I wanted to learn to be a computer programmer, right? And my dad tells me that would be the stupidest thing you could ever do. Computers are going to be a passing fad, right? Well, as an 11 year old, that's my dad, right? So I believe him. There's an emotional attachment to it. And I never touched computers again until I had to create a training platform. And then I had to revisit that belief set 
and have to reframe it in a way like, well, one, dad was obviously wrong because you can see what's going on in the world today. Um, you with beliefs, you it allows you to challenge where the belief established. You know, and a lot of times that's why if you got kids out there, be careful what you tell them because what you say to them that has emotional attachments will become their beliefs. So if you tell your kid, you know, you're a worthless piece of crap, guess what that kid's going to start believing? That you're a he's a worthless piece of crap and then he'll start acting accordingly. You know, I, I love telling the story of Thomas Edison. You know, Thomas Edison's teacher sent a note home to the mom saying that he was developmentally disabled, he's not going to make anything in life and whatever. And he asked his mom, "Well, what did what did the note say?" And she said the teacher said you're so brilliant you can do whatever you want. And the rest is history, right? One teacher said this guy wasn't going to do anything. Mom says, you can do whatever you want. And now we have a light bulb, you know, electricity, you know, you name it. So um, be careful what you say to your children because, or the people you love and care about. Because if you're a person of influence, uh, your words have power because your words bring emotions with it and your emotions will bring beliefs. So that's kind of. And, a, a yeah. Tip. And that, and that just reminds me of like how medicating you know, the the over medication of youth uh, and the impact that that has, not just through the actual physical medication, but also through the impact of what they believe about themselves due to being medicated since they were a child. You know, I talked to someone uh, recently and they said they said to me, they go, you know, I don't think I've ever known what it's like to just be myself without medication. They right. looked all the way back and every single phase of their life was a different medication. They know what they're like on this and that and the other thing. But they were like, I was, a, you know, in grade school when I got put on these things and I have no clue who I actually am. And so they were trying to, you know, figure out probably maybe not in the most healthy way, but trying to figure out sure. what to do from there. And I think what you're saying here uh, is so important. And I've, I've, one more thing to hit on that, which is in your stories here, one of the things that seems to be a consistent um, kind of experience after people go through this process and, and start to heal these traumas. And, you know, maybe people who are listening have been in therapy for 15 years and had some breakthroughs and, you know, it's, it's just maybe slower than what you're talking about. But what I've tended to find in my own experience is the humor that comes at the end of going through these processes, uh, you know, being able to laugh about the pork and being able to laugh about, um, you know, ourselves and our idiosyncrasies and, uh, and our odd oddities, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting as I dig into all these different personality tests and developmental stages and anxiety treatments and body keeps the score and everything. It's like, you know, I, I just took the Enneagram again and I was reading, I tested as a four and I'm just reading through it and, you know, say what you will about any of these tests, but I'm just reading through and I'm just like laughing at how I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that's mm -hmm. what it is. I guess I can laugh about it, you know, and like letting go and reframing and doing all these things that you're talking about. And I guess one of my questions for you is like, you know, you, you talk about it being healing and you talk about it being um, a quick healing in a lot of cases. Uh, but what, have there been cases where additional maintenance is needed over time? Have people had to revisit this on like maybe a every five year, 10 year period or something along those lines? What has been your experience with the maintenance side of things if it's even necessary? Yeah. So the memory reconsolidation is actually, it's a permanent issue. So if you get in, if you dig in, I mean, there's some deep rabbit holes on research on the memory reconsolidation, even down into like mice. Once those memories reconsolidate, they go to different parts of the brain. You're, you're literally detaching pathways. 
we have had people have to come back for additional sessions, but typically it's because a new traumatic event occurred and they had a new reactivity to it, or we're layers, right? We have layers of emotions. And once you start peeling those layers away, you know, maybe you get, maybe, you, maybe heal anger, sadness, fear, shame, guilt, hurt, anxiety. And then several months go by and you're feeling a new emotion and maybe it's frustration, resentment, rejection, abandonment. So we've had had people have to come back to do multiple sessions, but that's just to get all of the other underlying emotions. So what we've done now is we've, we've learned to start attacking those, all of those emotions. So I'll, I may go through 15 different emotions with somebody when we do the emotions work. Trauma is a little bit different, right? If you, if you heal the trauma, it reconsolidates, but the brain has a tendency sometimes to delete information, distort information, suppress information. And the, we always tell everybody that we work with, all right, think of trauma as a tarp, right? You throw tarp over the grass. What happens to the grass after a week? The grass dies, right? Now, all of a sudden you pull that tarp off the grass. The, what's the first thing that grows through the dead grass? Weeds, right? So sometimes we refer to those weeds pop up and then we just do the work on the weeds the same way we did their big trauma. Uh, but typically we're going to get everything in about four days because they start sleeping between sessions and then they start processing. And that's when things usually start coming up because the brain's going to be like, oh, I got this new skill, this tool. I like it. Hey, what about me? Let's get rid of this one. Because, you know, we had a psychologist that was working with us for a while. He said the brain presents emotions when it's ready to process them. So if you get all of the emotions and then over time, another emotion pops up, or maybe you don't even know you're being affected by a specific emotion until your wife says, why are you acting like a seven-year-old, right? Any, any, ever hear that, right? So that was like a regular for me. Why are you acting like a seven-year-old? Well, because reality was I was acting like a seven-year-old because that was the root of the emotion that I keep activating. That was the pattern of behavior. So, but once you get everything, because um, what we do is we do those scoring metrics. And then usually two weeks after the last session, we go back and ask the same questions. And that's where you're looking at, oh, wow, the, the 72 dropped to a one on the PSSI five or the PCL five or the 21 dropped to a one on the anxiety or the 28 is now a zero on the depression. So you can see the neurological changes. Uh, and that's the really cool part is these are neurological issues. They're not psychological. You could develop psychological problems as a result of trauma, but it's usually the patterns of behavior that come after. Maybe you get a benefit from having an outburst and then you start developing those patterns of behavior, or maybe you develop a personality disorder. Maybe you're like borderline or histrionic in that cluster B. That's a little bit different because you're actually feeding a negative behavior and they're, they're getting a positive response for it, you know? So that's something that's a little bit different than just regular PTS. That's usually going to take a little bit more in-depth therapy with a, a licensed professional, but yeah, once you, once you process it, your, your, your brain is, is smooth sailing at that point. So as we get to the end of the conversation here, are there any practices that you would like to share with folks of things they might be able to do at home just to get like a taste of what this is like before they dive in all the way? Well, the, the what we always suggest people do is actually go through a timeline of your life. Start with your earliest conscious memory and associate into as many of those early memories as possible until you start feeling emotions, Right. Those are what we call ab reaction. You ab react to the emotion. Boom. Oh, that's a, that's five years old. That's anger. I feel it. Right. Or you're seven years old and you feel as long as you can identify those points in time, it makes the cleanup process significantly easier. 
But if somebody's not ready or prepared to go into the work, you know, we always recommend breath work. There's, you could do a lot of deep diaphragmatic breath work that can take you out of a, a sympathetic response. They can get you parasympathetic. Um, I love the, the ice immersion, the ice baths. You know, if you want to shut your nervous system down really quick, go stand under a cold shower for as long as you can handle it. Let it run down the back of your neck. It'll shut down your nervous system. It'll allow you to come out of that fight or flight. Uh, because the, when you get into those spirals, the, the brain will, will typically activate the nervous system. You'll feel the triggers and you might loop in 90 second loops. So the trigger may become active 90 seconds. That, that wave may pass and then it may come back. All right. And then there's things you can do to kind of keep that calm. Meditations is really good to kind of get you into that mindful present state. But ultimately, you're going to have to work on the roots and you're going to have to go back and address those early emotional patterns, you know, where it started. Cause like we always say, once you feel it, if it's an active trigger, you're going to feel it. That's what you can, that's what we can work on. If you go to a memory and it's, there's no emotion to it, your brain's already processed it. That one's done. You don't even have to address that anymore. It's in the right part of the brain. It's no longer a, a problem for you. But if you have anxiety, if you go back to the first anxious moment, that's typically what has to get worked on. And then if it's traumatic, then we want we do want the trauma resiliency protocol. If it's just an emotional response, it's the emotions management piece. And then you're not feeling the anxiety anymore. Because it's crazy because when you when you live with anxiety and then all of a sudden you wake up the next day and you don't have it, that's a different feeling. You know, I told my best friend Nick, I said, you know, I didn't realize I could feel this good. Right. When I finally got some of that really deep stuff out, I was like, holy cow, this is uh, uh, one time frustration was my biggest emotion. When I got rid of it, I had butterflies for like two hours. I was like, this feels amazing. Probably doesn't feel legal, but it's feeling feels amazing. So it, it was it's just crazy. Um, I love what we do. It's it, it you, obviously I'm passionate about it. You know, we always say it. The anxiety guys were leading an emotional revolution and I, we can change our whole planet if we can change our mindset. As an anxious uh, individual, you've got me very excited. So I can't wait to keep diving in. And I appreciate you sharing so much of your insights with us today. If folks want to find out more about your work and get involved, where can they find you? So www.anxietyguys.com is our website. We have a podcast called The Anxiety Guys, plural. Um, you can listen to some of the episodes, hear some of the stories. We did a, a deep dive with Dr. David Hagedorn, who does the brain science piece. Very fascinating. Um Get a help at 220.org if you're a veteran or first responder, or if you're married to one, if you're a spouse of one, um, that treatment is covered. It's subsidized by the nonprofit. There's no cost for them. So anybody in your audience that's ever worn a uniform for a purpose higher than self, they, they can go that route. Civilians can still get help through Anxiety Guys. So dan at anxietyguys.com is my email, and I'd love to have a conversation. Dan, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Martin, I appreciate you. You're a great American. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.